afternoon, everybody. As Ben mentioned, my name is Zan Ali. I'm the CEO of Centuro Global and also an IP solicitor, uh, which is what we're here to discuss today, intellectual property. Um, this is a critical component of pretty much every business these days. In fact, some studies show that on average, IP makes up 80% of the value of a business. So if you don't protect your IP, these assets can be lost. And any, any business owner will know that you can't afford to just lose assets in a company, especially such valuable assets. So today I'm gonna to give you a quick overview of the four main types of IP, discuss how you should protect these, and then how you can use and manage your IP. I'll take about 25 minutes, 20 minutes. And after that, I'll be having a chat with Alex Athianitis, who's the director of an EdTech startup, Education Shed. And they've successfully scaled into over 100 countries in just two years. Okay, let's get started. So anything you create or ideate, you will want to protect. But rather than there being just one overarching form of protection, IP falls under four or at least four main umbrellas and a few sub umbrellas that I'll go into later. So the four core main areas are trademarks, patents, copyright and design rights. Now every business will have some form of IP that falls into at least two of the above categories, if not more. So therefore very important for any business to conduct a review and list all of the IP assets that exist within your business. And collectively, these will all form your company's IP arsenal. So, I mean, what I'd recommend is if you haven't done this already, look at your business, identify all of the different assets and put them into an IP portfolio. And this will allow you to use each of these assets for a competitive advantage in the marketplace and increase the value of your company. So you might be asking now, how do I know what's covered by each type of IP? So let's quickly go through, through those at a high level. So first type of IP right is trademarks. So trademarks, they're used as a sign of origin for goods and services sold by a company, and they are everywhere. So it could be a company name, it could be um, a logo, it could be a tagline. So for example, McDonald's, the actual name McDonald's is trademarkable. The logo, the golden arches, the M, trademark. Even slogans. So if we look at Nike, they've got the tick, they've got the word Nike, and then they'll also have just do it amongst a whole bunch of other trademarks. Um, and some brands, they actually even trademark colors, which is quite hard to do, but it does happen. So if you think of Heinz, the baked beans company, the shade of blue they have on their tins, on their baked bean tins, that's trademarked. So nobody else other than Heinz can sell baked beans in that shade of blue on the tin. So for something to qualify as a trademark, it must be able to be depicted graphically. So you've got to be able to see it. So whether it's written down, whether it's a picture, color, even actually sounds, I mean, it's quite rare, but you can trademark a sound, but that would have to be depicted through the score, you know, the musical notes on the paper. Um, a trademark has to be distinctive, which means it has to stand out in some way, and it cannot be descriptive. So you wouldn't be able to get a trademark for a company selling oranges that was called Orange, but it would be fine for a company that sold phones or software. So the name, the trademark, cannot describe the services. Um, and once you register a trademark, you'll be able to take legal action against anyone who uses your brand without your permission. You'll be able to put the R, little R symbol next to your brand, your logo. Um, you don't have to do that, but you can do it. And that shows it's yours and warns others against using it. You can obviously license your brand and sell it, which we'll come into later. Um, and trademarks are applied for on a national basis. So you do apply for them country by country and they last for an initial 10 years. Um, and you have to renew them after 10 years and on, an, on a 10 year basis, every 10 years, you renew and you can essentially have a trademark forever. 
Um, and an important thing to consider, so let's say you're at the beginning of your journey, you've not registered, or maybe you're not, but let's say you haven't registered your brand name as a trademark and you want to do it, you need to consider long-term international expansion goals. So just because the trademark is available in the UK, it doesn't mean that it will be available in other countries such as the US. So let's say you're planning on expanding into the US and that's a key market for you, part of your business plan. If the brand is taken in the US, that could be a major issue for you. So this is something you need to consider and think about from the outset. So I'll give an example. Um, in 2009, Apple bought the rights to the trademark for iPad. So a Chinese company called ProView originally owned those rights. They'd registered them in 2000, iPad. Um, and Apple came along and said, we're creating this tablet. We're going to call it the iPad. We need to buy those rights. And they bought those for $55,000. So they presumed they'd bought the worldwide rights for iPad. But it turned out that this Chinese company, ProView, had a subsidiary, had a separate entity. That separate entity owned the rights to iPad in China, and the other one owned the rest of the rights. So Apple bought the global rights for iPad, excluding China. So iPad was released, massive success. Everyone loves it, grows in popularity. Um, so the value of the product goes up, the value of the Apple brand, the iPad brand goes up. And suddenly Apple realized they quickly discovered they were unable to use the mark in China as it was still owned by ProView. So what happened was they had to do a new deal with ProView for the Chinese rights. So bearing in mind, they purchased the worldwide rights excluding China for $55,000. By the time iPad was a success, they spent $60 million to buy the trademark in China. So I think that just shows the value of a name of a trademark. So ProView were clearly laughing all the way to the bank. Um, so it's very important to register your trademark, get your brand ownership sorted. Um, and if you haven't done that or need any help with it, do get in touch. So that's the first type of IP. Secondly, you've got patents. So patents protect inventions. And this is provided that they are new. So what does that mean? It means you cannot have made the idea public in any way. So let's say you come up with an idea, you go to the pub with your friends and you start telling them all about your idea. It's no longer new, it's no longer patentable, so don't do that. Secondly, it has to be inventive. Um, so this means that the methodology behind your idea cannot be obvious to an experienced individual within the field. And thirdly, it has to be capable of industrial application. So this means it's got to be a practical invention. It's got to be something that's actually capable of being used, it can't just be a theory. So if you have this idea and you feel like it qualifies for a patent and you get a patent, a patent gives the holder the right to stop others from making, using or selling that invention without the inventor's permission. And this lasts for up to 20 years. So essentially, you get a 20 year monopoly over your invention. Um, and this is kind of regarded as a reward for innovation. So you will have been creative, you'll have spent time, money into this, you will have created it. and you should be rewarded for that, but it cannot last forever because you've got to take into account competition issues and fairness for the public. So, I mean, that all sounds great. So you're probably thinking, oh, I should definitely get a patent. And patents are probably the most powerful form of IP. Um, and there are, but there are actually pros and cons to patenting a product. So if we start with the pros, why should you file for a patent? Well, as I just mentioned, a patent will allow you to prevent competitors from using your technology, will give you the edge in the marketplace. And this will help you attract investors, it will minimize competition, it will raise the value of the business. And it, even, it might even make you attractive enough for a bigger entity to simply buy you out to gain access to your IP. And thirdly, another reason to think, this is kind of a little bit rarer, but you never know, 
So it's also important to note that by not filing a patent, you actually risk somebody else who may have had the same idea filing one first. And if they get there first, by coincidence, they'll actually be preventing you from utilizing your invention because they've got there before you. Um, and you, if you did then carry on doing it, you'd be infringing their patent and be liable uh, to be sued. So, you know, it's quite strong motivations to file for a patent, but then on the other hand, there are also arguments against it. So when you do put in a patent application, or whether you're granted it or not, um, at that point, the patent document is public. So whilst a competitor may not be able to copy your idea directly, your methodology is out there for anyone to see, and it may provide people with enough inspiration to produce something similar, but sufficiently different to prevent an infringement. So it depends on the nature of your product, the nature of your invention, the nature of your creation. So it's something to bear in mind. Um, and also, patent protection is territorial. So if you applied for a UK patent or an EU patent, you'd be protected in those regions. So this wouldn't stop somebody from another territory from copying your invention unless you applied for international patents and you applied for patents in the different specific regions. So to give another example, if we look at Elon Musk, founder of Tesla, SpaceX, with the SpaceX program, in 2012, he made some comments and he said that publishing patents for his ideas would give China a recipe book to follow. So he, he didn't file any patents for SpaceX. And instead, he kind of tried to maintain confidentiality within the people who worked for him. So every employee had to sign non-disclosure agreements. Everything was really tight knit. There was a lot of liability for anyone who leaked anything. So it was all kept hush hush. And this in this that's called a trade secret so in that way the secrets are kept within that organization within the people within the team and you don't make it public and you're protected so if you have an idea you think could be patented um and you don't you're not too worried about the public nature or the territorial nature you should definitely find a patent attorney to help you draft this complex document to make sure you get the right protection if you can even get protection so that's something you definitely need expert advice on so contact us if you need any help with that so the third form of ip is copyright copyright is an automatic right so it doesn't actually need to be registered um, so copyright protects any original work, provided there's some sort of skill or judgment involved. So this could be a book, could be pictures, music, films, even computer programs and databases. So when we're talking about computer program, you're probably thinking software. So it's the code that is protected by copyright, not what the software does. So if you code this software and somebody else has software that does the same thing using different code, you don't really have any case against them. It's the code itself that's protected. And beyond the code, you've also got external elements such as the graphical user interface, any pictures, graphics within your software, music you use, text, all of that is protected by copyright also. So if you have copyright protection, nobody else can reproduce the work, perform it or share it in any way without your permission. And if anyone does, you can recover damages from them uh, by suing them or you know, writing to them and saying you stop, stop doing this. So there are a few issues in terms of ownership of copyright. So generally speaking, the author or creator of a work will automatically own the copyright. If the work is created in the course of employment, there'll be an assumption that the employer owns the copyright rather than the employee who created the work. So despite the fact this ex assumption exists, it's still safer for any employers to include an IP clause in all their agreements saying that any work the employee does is owned by the employer. And as an employee, if you work for a company, you need to bear in mind anything you do for a company is owned by them. So if you leave, um, you can't take that with you. If you have a side hustle and you're working in the evenings or on the weekends, 
you should probably speak to your employer and say, I'm doing this on the side and I want to own this, not you guys, um, because there are a few cases and issues where things have gone wrong. So <clears throat> that's employees. Now, where a business hires freelancers or third parties, let's say for website design, app design, branding, anything like that, um, that's actually automatically owned by the third party because copyright vests with the author, they're not an employee. So when you hire a third party to create anything for you, whether it's a design, whether it's technology, anything, you should explicitly include in an agreement with them that you will own the copyright. And if you've already engaged somebody, they've designed your logo or they've you know, done some imagery for you, if you, haven't, if you didn't agree the copyright to be passed over to you at that point, you can still assign it over now. So it's called an IP assignment agreement, and you should definitely speak to any suppliers that you have and make sure that they assign IP rights. See if they're nice, they'll do it. If they're a bit cheeky, some of them may think, oh, it's after the event, maybe I can charge you for this. Um, so it's definitely something important to bear in mind. The fourth type of IP right is design rights. So design rights protect what things look like, their shape, their appearance. The design must be new and it cannot be dictated by functionality in order to qualify for protection. So what does that mean? Uh, let's say you've got a car. Car has four wheels on average. Those wheels are round. Uh, a company couldn't say, I want a design right for a wheel because it needs for the round shape because it needs to be round in order to move. So that's the functionality. However, if you looked at the actual wheel itself, you've got the tire, you've got the alloys. If a car brand decided to have some unique design with the alloys they could protect that because it's a purely visual aesthetic design not functionality um, and whenever you create a design it's automatically protected for up to three years as an unregistered design however you can register your designs and within the eu that will give you up to 25 years of protection so those are the four main forms of ip so trademarks patents copyright and design rights and we'll do a quick case study to show how these apply to a business so Coca-Cola, household brand, they hold a vast number of IP assets. So if we start with copyright, you'll see that for Coca-Cola, they any artistic work they create, any posters, any videos, um, the labeling on the packages, all of that is protected by copyright. And Coke have even historically associated themselves with Christmas. So they've incorporated Santa into their advertising and the color red. They use the same jingle every year when it comes to holidays are coming. I won't start singing that. Um, and all of that's protected by copyright. Then you've got the iconic logo. So that's protected as the word Coca-Cola. Then it's also protected in the font, the swirly font, Coca-Cola, stylized font. It's also protected with the red background. And they've got a whole host of trademarks. So you've got the copyright in the imagery and any artistic creations, sounds, visuals. You've got the trademark for the name. Then the Coca-Cola recipe, this is a trade secret. So Coke did not patent this because then they would have had to publish the recipe. The world would have known for 20 years what the recipe was. I don't actually think recipes qualify for patents in general, but let's pretend they did. Uh, it would be made public, everyone could see it. After those 20 years, anyone could make Coke with the exact same taste. So instead, they've kept it as a trade secret. They are very, they've never officially released it. Some people have released versions of it. Competitors have made similar things, other types of cola. But the Coke recipe is a famous trade secret. And then you've also got the bottle. So this might surprise you, but that glass bottle, Coke and the registered design for that shape. And obviously a lot of soft drinks come in that shape, but most of those soft drinks are actually owned by Coca-Cola um, as a wider brand. So speaking of brands, the copyright, the trademark, and the registered design would all fall under the Coke brand. 
The trade secret, the recipe, that's another IP asset within the company, but that falls outside the brand. That's a separate asset. And Coke also do own a number of patents for manufacturing processes, how they produce the bottles and the produce in the factories. So when you take all those assets, the copyright, the trademark, and the registered design make up one side, and then the trade secret and patents are separate. So a brand is pretty much you know, what, how the public perceives the company. And these days, brand value is very important. It's a little bit subjective how you calculate it, but just to show you, Coke's brand, copyright, trademarks, and registered designs, they are worth $84 billion. So the company as a whole has a net worth of $230 billion, but the brand alone, so the recipe, which is a trade secret, which is probably a massive component of Coke, you know, the actual drink, um, or one of the drinks of the many sub-brands they own, um, and the other patents they hold are on top of that 84 billion, which just shows the vast value of IP for a company, any company. So now we've established what the four or five main forms of IP are and how important they are, uh, we need to consider protection. So when you look at your IP in your business, you need to kind of think of it in two ways. So one is offense and the other is defense. So what do I mean by that? So with offense, you need to be developing your armory of IP assets. So as I mentioned earlier, you build up your portfolio so you can list everything you have. I've got this trademark for my logo, this trademark for my name, this trademark for my slogan. I've got all of these copyright assets so in this pattern, design rights, whatever it is. Put that portfolio together. You've now developed this. This is your arsenal that you can go out there and use. You can you know, increase the value of your brand, you can create images, you can do marketing, you can assert your authority in the marketplace, other people cannot be doing similar things to you, um, and that's your offense. When we talk about defense, what we mean by that is, you need to ensure that you aren't infringing anyone else's armory of IP. So other businesses will be going out and building up their armory, their portfolio, and you need to make sure you're not treading on their toes. And this, starts literally from day one so before you create anything whether it's let's say you come up with a company name logo you need to check to see does somebody already own this do they already own something similar it doesn't have to be exactly the same it could be similar are they doing similar activities to me so if you create something and start using it without doing that and somebody else already has a similar thing protected you will be infringing you will be liable you could this could result in a civil lawsuit heavy fines even a custodial sentence so you could have wasted a lot of time, money, and energy on creating this work, building your brand, or you know, putting a product out on the shelf that you think is uh, inventive. Turns out somebody else has a patent for it. Turns out somebody else has a similar brand. You've got to pull that product from shelves. You've got to rebrand. It's just not worth it. So when it comes to your brand name, tagline, logo, engage a trademark lawyer. Get them to run a clearance search, and they'll look to see if anything existing out there is out there. Um, and if you're working on an invention, any kind of creation, something you think is patentable, speak to a patent attorney. A lot of them would give you a kind of initial consultation and look at your product and see, is it patentable? Is it something you should worry about? They'll conduct clearance searches. Um, it's quite difficult with patents because there are so many patents in the world that it's pretty difficult to look at an idea and just think, does anything like that exist? You can't, it's hard to search the database, but it's still worth having a go speaking to a patent attorney. It's much better to do this early rather than after you've invested all your time and money, your blood, sweat and tears into the project, and then discover you can't launch due to a pre-existing pattern or trademark. So once you know you're in a position to protect, um, there's a few different ways of thinking of protection. So the obvious one is register. So with trademarks, 
designs and patents, you can register those with copyrights automatic. You don't need to worry about registering it, but make sure you just list all your copyright. Some people get a little bit cautious. It's not required, but people can, you know, save files, print out files, date it. So in the past, people would post themselves, you know, an article, whatever they've created that they think is protected by copyright. So they could say, this is the date I created it. If anybody creates this afterwards, it's my right. Um, But you don't actually need to do that. So with trademarks patents, you can register those with your national IPO. As I said earlier, it's a national basis. So in the UK, it'd be the UK Intellectual Property Office, UK IPO, or the EU IPO for the EU, etc. And um, so once you've done that, that's how you get your registrations that you can add to your portfolio. And then separately, cybersecurity, not many people talk about this uh, with IP, but it's important because if somebody hacks into your database, into your computers, into your systems, they could uh, steal your IP, they can leak your IP. If you've got an idea that you want to patent, if they leak it, it's no longer new, it's out there in the public, you can't patent it anymore. Um, Or a competitor might copy things you're doing, find confidential information, so make sure your firewalls are up to date and you're protected from a cybersecurity basis. Um, And then employees, this is an important one. So I touched on it earlier in terms of who owns copyright but if we look more generally at ip if an employee if you own a business and you have employees if that employee leaves your organization you should make sure you have an exit interview with them and remind them of their confidentiality obligations which should be present in their employment contracts so just because they created a particular work or came up with a trade secret or you know they may have even invented this product for you you own it so this doesn't mean they can go on to disclose the concept or recreate the work with their next employer in the same way so just remind them of that obligation and if you're an employee bear that in mind you can't just change jobs or you can't download all of the information from your current employer and think i'm going to start a business and i'm going to use all of that whether it's um the contacts sales methodologies actual ip doesn't matter you just can't do it you've got to be careful so if i give you an example of that um in 2016 uber bought a self-driving car startup called otto and Kind of the main reason for this is they wanted to bring in all the talented Otto engineers. Um, and the founder of Otto was formerly an engineer for a company called Waymo. And when he left Waymo to found Otto, he downloaded a whole load of confidential information that belonged to Waymo, which he used to kickstart Otto. Now, when U- Waymo didn't notice this at first, and then Uber came along and bought Otto, and they failed to pick up on this during the due diligence phase. They didn't really delve deep enough and realized that this IP had been essentially stolen from Waymo. So Waymo realized this after the purchase went through and sued Uber because they now own Otto. They lost, as an Uber lost, and they had to pay Waymo $245 million in Uber shares. So this purchase of Otto turned out to be a lot more expensive than they originally planned because of this stealing of trade secrets. So. There's many perspectives and layers to this. As an employee, don't do it. You're the founder of Otto. Was suddenly, you know, had his whole reputation stained. Uber would have got rid of him. They were probably Uber probably would have sued him as well. Um, Waymo would have had to have all the cost, legal costs associated with suing Uber and trying to get the money back. Uber obviously lost out big time, two hundred forty-five million dollars. So it's important to think of that with employees. And again, third parties, as I mentioned earlier with copyright, make sure you have everything signed over. When it comes to anything patentable, make sure, you know, I said keep it a secret, don't tell people about it. But obviously, when you're trying to develop something or build something, you need to, you know, tell people in your team, you might need to use third parties, you might need to use suppliers, and that's fine. 
um, you just need to make sure they sign an NDA. Now, a lot of startups think, oh, I need, to sign, I need to have people sign an NDA for anything. If it's just your general business idea and you're speaking to investors, you only need people to sign an NDA when you're giving away anything that's really confidential, really a trade secret or something that's patentable and you don't want it to get out there. Otherwise, people shouldn't get too trigger happy with NDAs, but it's still a very important thing to think about. So that's how you create IP or what IP is, how you protect it. Now let's talk about using and managing your IP. So hopefully most of your IP activity will actually be to do with licensing, not litigation. So license is essentially an agreement between the owner of the technology, the product, the work, whatever it is, and the party that wants to use it in return for remuneration. So any licensing agreement will involve business considerations, technical considerations, and legal considerations. And you want to make sure you have these sorted from the very beginning. So what does this mean? All license agreements are negotiable, and you have to agree a whole host of terms before deciding on the price, as the price will be affected by what's on the table. So for example, how long is the license for? Is the deal exclusive or non-exclusive? Who's taking on the risk? Who's managed, if it's technology, who's managing that during the use? Who's controlling the data? How much tech support will you, as the creator of the technology, the license saw, how much will you be required to provide to anyone you license it to? So all of these come into it from a business perspective, technical perspective, and legal perspective. And once you clarify that, that will dictate the price. And if you ever go on to sell your company, the IP itself is a very important asset. So okay, let's talk about Volkswagen. So in the late 90s, Volkswagen, they were looking to become a little bit more upmarket. And they actually negotiated the purchase of Rolls-Royce. And as part of this, they secured the Bentley brand, which was owned by Rolls-Royce at the time, and factories amongst a whole host of other assets. Now, one thing they forgot to do during this purchase was to include the Rolls-Royce trademark in the deal, which was instead sold to BMW. So Volkswagen bought all of the Rolls-Royce assets without the brand which was a disaster as the Rolls-Royce brand is what the public recognize and buy into. So Volkswagen spent all that money to buy Rolls-Royce, ended up with everything apart from the brand, which went to one of their competitors, BMW. So as the original owners of Rolls-Royce, they were able to leverage their IP. They were able to sell their patented assets, their physical assets to Volkswagen. They were able to separate their trademark. They were able to sell the brand to BMW. They increased the value and they profited even more from all the various different assets compared to if they just sold everything to Volkswagen. So that, again, shows the value of all the different types of IP. Um, and let's talk about a few more examples for licensing. So um, Nokia is a good example. So I think everyone's probably heard of Nokia. They were originally a very successful mobile handset business. Before smartphones, Nokia was the phone to have. Not only did they design their handsets, but Nokia also created a lot of technology that their phones use. So they created the operating systems. They, they actually introduced camera phones. So they put the camera into a mobile phone. They introduced picture messaging and a whole host, thousands and thousands of patents for all these different inventions that all phones use. And Nokia continued to innovate and pioneer even today. So they're currently working on 5G. They own a lot of that. So whilst Nokia was slow to adapt to the smartphone era, pretty much fell away to the likes of Apple and Samsung, their immense portfolio of patents are still incredibly valuable. And they license all of this technology to Apple, to Samsung. So half the things on your iPhone are actually owned by Nokia. Um, and the value of these patents and these licenses and these deals they have with all these phone companies are in the billions. So that just shows you the value of IP. 
So that pretty much sums up the presentation. That was high-level overview, different forms of IP, why they're so important, how you need to get them right, protect them, use them, monetize them. Um, so create, protect, use, manage. That's the motto. If you haven't done any of that yet, do it as soon as possible. And if you need any help with any of that, feel free to get in touch. So now we're going to move on, and I'm going to ask Alex Athianitis, who's the director of EdSheds, to join me. And we're going to have a quick chat. So Alex, can you turn your camera on, please? Hi. Hello. See and hear me. Um, we can. How's it going? Yeah, it, it's going well. Um, I don't know if you if you fancied it, but uh, I, I put together a few slides about sharing stuff that's personal, or perhaps not, and we can just carry on chatting. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I was going to say, would you like to begin by edu uh, introducing Education Shed? So I don't know if you if you want to share your slides, then feel free to. Okay. Um, the slides are kind of slightly different, I suppose. They're not so much about EdShed and more about strategy. But I'll leave that to one side. So I um, am, am a director of EdShed. We are an education technology company founded two and a half years ago by my two co-founders, my co-directors, uh, Rob and Martin started the business two and a half years ago. Uh, and primarily it was Spelling Shed, so it's a spelling platform that children can use, gamified, and they can play it. And then about just over a year ago, they approached me as I was doing a lot of work in regards to mathematics teaching for young children in the UK and other countries and they asked me to come on board and lead math shed so now we have two product lines spelling shed and math shed and we're going to be launching two other product lines in september we've got phonics shed an early reading program coming out and also we have quiz shed coming out which is our own proprietary gamified quizzing platform that we've built in-house. So that's, that's yeah, who great. we are. So, I mean, so EdShed are one of our clients. We've helped them with trademark work to kind of protect them in the UK as well as overseas, part of their international strategy. And Alex, I remember speaking to you and you said that, you know, you guys have only been around for a couple of years, but you've managed to, you know, create your IP, all of your sub-brands, and you've gone from, you've, you've now got 3 million users in just over two years with minimal marketing spread, which is quite remarkable. Can you tell us a little bit about that rise? Yeah, so I suppose we were early adopters when it comes to organic social media marketing, the three of us. Rob, in particular, he has a separate uh, company called Literacy Shed, which is where uh, things really started. Rob had Literacy Shed and Literacy Shed Plus already. And Martin approached him and said, if you want to build one app, what would it be? And they decided upon Spelling Shed and they went together. So essentially in the education space, Shed, the Shed brand already had some weight because Rob is a very popular children's literacy consultant so he goes into schools and 
uh, teaches teachers how to better teach children how to read and write. And he has um, an accompanying website where he previews some of his resources. And now he has subscriptions so people can go on there. And um, he, he does a lot of literacy through film stuff and things like that. It's all, he, he is the, the only guy who does things the way that he does it. And push to find a primary school in England that doesn't use the literacy shed approach to reading or, or writing. So that's where we, we started out with. Rob had a very large online following, which again, he's built from scratch, being one of the first teachers on Twitter, being one of the first teachers on Facebook. And similarly, I was quite an early adopter in terms of making my teaching resources and sharing them on social media and built up a large following in terms of teachers using my maths resources in their in their classes so yeah it's 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 a matter i suppose of if you aren't going to be somebody who gets bored of finance and decides they want to do something different and thinks that education is a bit of fun to kick the tires at. Uh, if you're someone who's doing it, who knows what they're doing, you can make stuff that's really good and then you can share it for free to begin with to build up a following. So it's a lot of hard work in place of taking in other people's money and spending their money on social media ad spend and other forms of digital ad spend. But uh, it's more genuine and it translates to people better. It translates to users better. You get you get a lot more buy-in from them from doing it that way. And it's worked for us. And essentially, I believe in it. And I would uh, say to anybody, doesn't matter what your niche is, if you are expert in what you do and put in the hours on social media, connect with the right people, you can build a business that is profitable for yourself just doing what we've done okay fair enough that's good that's a great um example inspirational for a lot of people probably so you you guys have got a lot of sub brands so you know you've got um literacy shared spelling shared maths shared phonics shared quiz shared you've mentioned all of these yeah well at what point at what point did you start thinking about ip within your company and what made you choose to register trademarks when you did um so I guess like with literacy said, you know well enough because like Rob's had that going for, I don't know, like at least five years or something now. And his was one of the, the, the pieces of IP that he worked on. So you, you know well enough that, there'd been, that there are some product lines that we have that have been going for many years that have had no protection up until a year ago when you came in and uh, consulted with us and got those applications off the ground. So um, I guess the reason for it was because uh, at that point it was I was coming in, we were going to start building out MathShed, but when we were building out MathShed, we were also thinking along lines of there's going to be Phonics Shed, there's going to be Quiz Shed as well. So it made sense to um, create the umbrella of EdShed and then have the sub-brands. And then given that we were now really starting to um, reinvest 
our revenues back into building new product lines that at that at that point it made sense to properly protect everything yeah now that makes sense it's a good way of going about it i guess when you've got so many distinct product lines you guys have thought it through from the beginning before you've even launched so you've kind of elevated the education shed brand by having all the sub brands and let's say one day you wanted to sell off a piece of the pie you know each brand has its own value within the overarching brand so i mean since you've got your trademarks registered have you actually had any issues or challenges have they come in handy in any particular way um we've only had one issue today which was um at the beginning of the lockdown a lot of different people and some of you may have seen this started jumping online particularly onto social media and starting to try their hand at doing various forms of online teaching like uh, joe wicks became the nation's team teacher but it was happening in a, a much smaller scale with individuals thinking oh i'll start up a facebook page or an instagram account and i'll start um sharing stuff uh, and and trying to become like a social media celebrity uh, teacher or what whatever so there was this one guy and uh, I can't remember his name, it's like Mr. C or something. And he was like calling it like Mr. C's education shed. And then he was like, in a lot of the posts, it, it was like very early doors that we saw this happening. He was like education shed. And then he was referring to it abbreviated as the ed shed. And actually at that time, you had helped us protect ed shed, but we hadn't protected education shed at that time. We have since protected it, but Primarily, this guy was like, he had a big banner, like Mr. C's Education Shed. Um, and so it was Education Shed that he was um, infringing upon at first glance. But then we went through and we're like, wait a sec, you're using Education Shed, but you're also using Ed Shed. So that shows that you're really very deeply infringing upon our rights. Because even if we hadn't have protected Ed Shed at that point, we could have still sent off a passing off uh, letter, I believe, right? Yeah, because yeah. it was clear that that we were using it even if we hadn't protected it regardless this chap was infringing upon us left right and center and martin our ceo sent him uh, a message and an email advising him against using our intellectual property and the guy didn't really engage with us very well to begin with and was kind of as is the case uh, amongst uh, the teaching community, because it is a benevolent profession, it's a vocation, everything else. They're like, oh, you know, but we're teachers. It's like, yeah, we're teachers too. We're teachers that also happen to have an education technology company now, regardless. And Martin's thing was like, if I went out and said to someone, oh, this is Dr. Saunders' Coca-Cola company, how far do you think I would get with that? Um, and that seemed to translate into this guy's head more than anything else that had been said to him at, up until that point. And he, he he backed off. And I think he called it something like school shed instead, which we weren't particularly happy with, but we couldn't be bothered. Like he had a, like a very small little following, but there again, it is important for us because we handle children's data. There's like child safeguarding issues around it to have somebody that we don't know we don't know if he's been had a, a, a criminal record check and all that sort of stuff that you have to have to be 
uh, in control of children and their um, their data, like DBS type stuff that you have to do as a teacher. So it, it was a bit worrying and we did get them to back off and it's gone silent since, so that's been okay. That's the only uh, infringement that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, people will try and do all sorts. They'll see somebody doing well, and that's the, if it's early on, I think that's a good time to piggyback off the brand or they get inspired mm. by it. Some people don't even realize, they just think, oh, let's copy that to an extent. They don't realize that that's a legal issue. Um, so it's good to have your trademarks, your assets there to say, stop it, we own this. Mm. Um, so speaking of which, when we went through this process, so I, I speak to a lot of people, and a lot of people register their trademarks without any legal advice, which is fine. It's quite a, a somewhat straightforward process in theory, yeah. but yeah. there are a lot of kind of nuances to it where expert advice can make a massive difference in what's protected. So, I mean, what would yeah. you what would you say to people who are looking at trademarks and thinking, should they do it by themselves? Can they get advice? Because when we did it together, we we sat down, we went through all of the service offerings between each of your sub brands. We looked at what you could protect rather than, so when you protect, use, when you register a trademark, you protect it against a specific list of goods and services. And yeah. you have to be very precise with those and you need to look to the future as well. So it's not as straightforward as it seems. So, I mean, do you have any kind of advice for people on that? Um, my advice would be that it was definitely beneficial to speak with you and that you're, you have the perfect domain knowledge to approach uh, this, this the type of work that we were looking to do. In essence, we, like Dan has said, we have multiple brands. So it was important to look at the brands and then look at the different uh, usage classes that each brand pertains to. I think there are 43 of them in total. Is that about? Right, then? Uh, 45. Like that. 45. Okay, there you go. So, uh, to figure out which three or four each brand touched upon. Um, so, yeah, it was it, it, it was important to us. And then going forward, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead in the conversation at all here, but that we also had in mind that we wouldn't just be protecting in the UK, we'd be looking to protect internationally too. And that in particular, it was very useful having, in terms of us having quite a complex situation at the beginning, i.e. multiple uh, brand names, an umbrella brand name, different use classes. So it's great to have Zan on board for that. But then the next step is a really tricky stuff in terms of going international with it. And Zan has been uh, very uh, erudite in uh, helping in, in that regard. Oh, great. Thanks for that. <laughs> the kind words. But on that note, you guys are scaling rapidly into, you've got users in over 100 countries, 102 countries, I believe. Um, yeah. So just more generally, how, how have you managed to scale into so many territories at such a quick pace? Again, it's just a matter of being very laser focused in your niche. Uh, so Paul Graham, I believe, the guy who's like the Y Combinator guy in Silicon Valley, has this quote, which is like, so simple, make something people want. So because it's like user-generated design, we are all trained primary school teachers. We've all practiced as primary school teachers. We knew 
where he had a good idea of what products people need, which products are out there, which are, have some good stuff, which are terrible. So we know what people want, so we share it. And then once you share it, there not only is it quite, or is it's easier to find um, teachers to share stuff online because they gather on hashtags on Twitter, they gather in Facebook groups on Facebook. So you can be quite lazy focused, you can make something and you know where to share it. And then again, having been primary school teachers up until a year ago, two years ago, all, all of us have also recently been in, in the classroom that we know how to speak and to explain our product and what they do and what, the, what their value is. So essentially, once you do that, it then has a ripple effect. People try it, you have your early adopters, and then again, in terms of uh, marketing theory, there's a chap called Jonah Berger, who's a, a professor at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, which I was lucky to attend for a short while myself. And he says that you have certain individuals who are sneezers. So you want your early adopters, and once they've taken the stuff on board, you want people who share everywhere what they have. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a poor analogy considering we're in the middle of a pandemic, but it, it's, it's still being true, albeit uh, slightly more dystopic uh, at the moment. Um, so that, that's something. If you make something good, and I'm, I'm sure it is, is true in other uh, markets, ours just happens to be a very tight niche, and you make something, the power of um, word of mouth is so strong that teachers tried our stuff, it works, children make rapid progress, they make more progress using our products that cost a tenth of what like the big, uh, you know, Fortune 500 education companies that have technology uh, produce. So that's yeah. it, make something people want, make it, make sure it works really well, be loud about it, and don't rip people off of your pricing. And that's it. And that's how we've gone from zero to three million users. And we've spent like 60 quid once on Facebook, maybe, just to see if Facebook ads work. Yeah. And we decided that, no, we can do better for free. Like, I can share something on Facebook and reach 100,000, 250,000 people for free. I don't need to pay Facebook thousands of pounds to get that reach. So oh, sounds like you guys have done really well, very, very quickly. Um, I'm just a bit conscious of time, so I think we should mm -hmm. quickly go on to the Q&A. Um, so yeah, ben, ben can join us and ask the questions. Yeah, guys, thank, thank you so much for the session, uh, both, both sections of it. It's been, been super helpful. Um, I thought it might be easier, so I'll jump on. There's some really good questions here, and, and thanks everybody that's been hanging around. We, we've had, uh, oh, Zane's uh, left the table. He might have accidentally uh, turned himself off as well as the presentation. Hopefully I'll be back on this in a second. Um, thanks everybody for sticking around. We're just gonna ask some, a few of the questions now. Um, so Zane, one, one of the main ones, I think this came from your conversation around sort of third parties and so forth. Um, but we've just had someone mention that they're concerned that any third parties they've used now own their, their IP. Uh, is there any way to challenge them if it, if it starts being an issue? 
Um, well, it just kind of, kind of comes down to a conversation. So it's a negotiation at the end of the day. They, if you didn't agree with them in advance, that's kind of your error. So you can't do too much about it if they try and play hardball. But most, most people, most designers, third parties that offer a service, they know they're doing that work for someone else. So the majority of their time, they're, it's going to be look bad on them if they refuse to hand that over. And if they do charge for it, it can be a little bit cheeky unless they've set out an agreement that they want to own that IP. So generally speaking, it's, it's a tough conversation. I mean, I had a client once who they were selling designer handbags and they found resellers who were selling those bags a lot cheaper, managed to get them some other way. We, we could never figure out how they got the bags, but it wasn't, it wasn't illegal, it was completely legal. But they were undercutting the brand and it was a fairly new brand. So they said, we don't want this to happen. How can we stop it? And one of the tactics we employed was all of the photos of the handbags were the same ones from our client's website. So that's, they own the copyright, so that's copyright infringement. So we wanted to write to these resellers and say, stop selling our client's bags. You don't own the copyright in this, remove all those images. And if there's no images, it's harder for people to sell the products. But then we found out the photographers of those bags owned the copyright because the designer brand hadn't agreed the rights with the photographers and those photographers then wanted payment and it's literally just a negotiation so you have to track them down speak to them voice your concerns and there's not too much you can do in terms of challenging other than have a friendly conversation is there anything you'd advise them to do moving forward with third parties yeah every single uh, time you employ a third party to do anything for you they're creating something for you just have if you don't have an agreement, at least have a clause that says anything you create, um, I will own the IP for. I mean, we have IP agreements, so if anybody wants an IP assignment agreement, get in touch. We can speak about that. Yeah, or we'll cut out a clause that you can add to any any work you do. So we're happy to provide stuff like that. Um, perfect. Uh, if your online or remote training is undertaken by a company, is there any way to protect the company's training material um, as the IP is? This could obviously be copied um, while you presenting it online. Yeah, so this is one of the things. So that, if you create a presentation, so the presentation I created, for example, or this you know, training material, that's owned by the creator or presumably the company in this case. So in terms of preventing, it's automatically protected. So if somebody uses it, you just write to them and say, hey, this is ours. Can you stop, can you stop using this? Um, if they refuse, then it comes down to a case of threatening to sue, which could be a monetary issue. Um, so actually enforcing it can be tricky. So getting somebody to listen and you can send them letters, legal threats. Um, you have every right to because you own the copyright in that presentation. So it's just a case of giving it a go. If you need a lawyer to add weight to it, that can really scare somebody. Um, so you can protect it. You just got to write to them and see what happens. Fantastic. Um, so I think that there's a few questions in here which are good and I guess more about the overall concept of looking at it. So um, a lot of large brands who have higher value in their IP, um, just small companies uh, really need to do this due diligence and spend that much money on IP. Um, so that's just kind of a call for every company to take. So <clears throat> when it comes to patents, like I said, uh, there's pros and cons to using them. And one of the cons that I failed to, which I forgot to mention, was they are very expensive. They can be anywhere upwards of 5,000 pounds, 10,000, tens of thousands of pounds. And then even once you get one, which will take several years, enforcing it could end up costing you hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it can be costly. 
Um, so it just comes down to in your business, how valuable is that product? If you want investment or you know, you know that your whole business revolves around this product, a passive may be more important. Um, if it's not the case, then it may be less important. With trademarks, I would say they're a lot more important because that is your brand. So unless you've just picked a random name for the sake of it and you're thinking I might rebrand it, yeah, I'm not fussed. If you start building up a brand, trademark is crucial. So I mentioned all those big names, um, big brands, but a lot of they didn't start off that big. And if they didn't protect their IP at the beginning and other people stepped on their toes, that would have diluted their brand. They may not have been able to protect the brand at a later stage and all of that value would disappear. So if you're looking to grow and if you're looking to become a big name or a big company or you know sell your company, there's a lot of value that can be added through IP. So it comes down to a case of how much money do you have? How much are you willing to spend? Where do you want to put it? And IP, I think, is just as important for small brands as it is for big and you're better off starting early. I think that slightly leads on to the next question, just with uh, saying, I've been told patents take years to be approved. What if you've exited your company or wish to exit before the patent's approved? Um, does that affect sales? How does that sort of play into it? Yeah, it can take a while for a patent to be approved. Um, but the protection, if it's granted, is backdated to the day you put in the application. So that protection starts from then. So even if it takes, if you apply for a patent today and it's approved in three years, the protection will start from July 2020. So the fact you put in the application will have some value, less than if it was already granted. Um, but if you exit your company or wish to exit before it's approved, I don't think it should be a problem and there'll still be some value, um, if not as much as it would otherwise be. Yeah, perfect. Um, how effectively do NDAs, uh, or how effectively could they be enforced uh, for, for SMMEs? Uh, NDAs are always a tricky one. I think it's more of a psychological thing with NDAs. So if you say to somebody, sign this agreement, if you give away any of my information, we're going to sue you. And depending on the information, if it's a very specific infringement, if somebody leaks something, you can definitely enforce it. And you need that signed document to enforce it. And that can be crucial. But I feel like a lot of people tend to use NDAs now for anything. And half the time, it's just not necessary. And in those cases, if somebody does do something, it can be hard to enforce. So let's look at investors, for example. They receive hundreds of pitch decks every day, if not every, every week, if not every day. So if they have to sign NDAs for every startup they see, they could be seeing lots of similar startups. Like nowadays, hardly any idea is unique. You may have come up with something and think, oh, that's brilliant. And there's 7 billion people on this planet that could easily be somebody else has come up with something similar. And if an investor receives more than one of the same, they would say, they could, they, they would be able to say, I didn't breach your NDA with you because I got this information from a separate party. So in that sense, it can be difficult to enforce. Um, so they're not the be all end all, but it's definitely better to have one than not to in some cases. And in other cases, people just don't need them and ask people to sign them when it's not necessary. Perfect. And wh why do you think a lot of companies wait so long to protect their IP if it's so important and valuable? Uh, I guess this is just a misconception. So people don't realize the importance of IP. So that's kind of the purpose of this session is to kind of educate people on how important IP can be. And I think it's more of a, it's a newer kind of phenomenon. So if we looked at uh, the top 10 companies on the SMP in the 90s, they were all going to be predominantly either financial institutions or product-based companies. If you look at it today, 
majority of the top 10, you've got, you've got the likes of Amazon, Facebook. These are all kind of tech companies, software companies. Suddenly, the value is in the IP, not in, um, not in a tangible asset. It's more the intangible assets. So times are changing. And in the past, people didn't know how to value intangible assets or IP. It was a lot more difficult. Now people are getting better at it and realizing how valuable it really is. So, yeah, I guess people are just either don't realize or it comes down to the money thing they think at the beginning. I don't want to spend that money there. I'd rather spend it on hiring an engineer rather than getting a patent, which can make sense. Um, so, and then they forget to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one's a, a little more specific, I guess. Can an American e-learning platform take action against someone sharing their slides in the UK if there's no copyright symbol anywhere? Uh, you can because you own the, the copyright symbol is irrelevant. If you own the copyright in that, in that, uh, in those slides, then you own that. So you don't need to have the symbol. If somebody shares it somewhere, I mean, you're not going to sue them for money unless you're suffering a loss and then monetizing it. If they're just sharing it, it's a bit harder to enforce. But you can write to them and say, "Hey, we own the copyright in this. You're sharing it without our permission. Uh, can you stop it?" And because you own the copyright, they will have to stop it. If they don't, you can then take further action. Cool. I've got a, a couple questions here, but also one from myself, which I think might be helpful for people. But this one's just quick. Um, if VCs are refusing to sign NDAs, uh, how how can you protect your IP? Um, well, if you're just going to pitch to a VC, you shouldn't. At that point, you're not really giving away anything confidential. So, if you want to share an idea with them that's patentable keep that out of your initial presentation or when you reach out to them, say, I'm willing to share X, Y, Z with you, but this part uh, is patentable. I haven't yet got a patent or applied for it and I need to keep it a secret. For that, I need you to sign an NDA. Um, but most of the time when you have your initial convo, you won't go into enough detail where you're giving away those secrets. So you probably, you might lose certain introductions because VCs will be like, we're not signing an NDA. You've now blown your chance. So you need to be careful with what you share and when you share it. Yeah, so maybe just look at how you're building a pitch deck around that IP without and, and showing its value without giving it away. And then, Yeah, and if it's then, if it's not a patent, then it doesn't matter because if you have a trademark, you have a trademark. If you've created something visually, you have the copyright. So you're not gonna lose you're not gonna lose your IP in that sense. Yeah, I, I think if you on back off one of our previous events speaking with, with some investors and, and it's worth checking out if if the person asks this question wants to on our YouTube and so forth, um, a couple of the investors we had were talking about when sort of people reach out to them and what they're looking for at, at first is not to be bombarded with things like NDAs and necessarily just blind pitch decks. If you can build up a relationship, share the ideas, share the solution, then once you've got a relationship, I think you'll find they'll be more willing, a little bit more willing to sign NDAs to then get further conversation. So it may just be of how you approach them to get that initial intro and get that initial in before you start giving away sort of any IP. I think yeah, just, to add to, yeah. just to add to that quickly, very quickly. So let's say I created a toaster and toasters didn't exist. The methodology of how the toaster works is what's patentable. So it's that that I would want to protect. If I said to someone, I've created a device that heats up bread, you can say that and not lose the IP. It's how it heats up the bread that's protectable. So you can give away high level information without going into detail of your specific methodology. I mean, obviously, if you give away your idea and no one's ever thought of that, you might be precious about it because you don't want other people to start doing the similar thing, even if it's in their own way. But that's kind of the line. So the idea itself isn't protected. It's the methodology. Cool. Well, what might be valuable, I, I think, if, if you don't mind, is 
at, at what stage in a company's roadmap do you think someone should protect their trademark or their brand versus their, their IP? So we're looking at IP as being quite expensive and long-term, um, but then there's also, I think this leads into some of the questions about the cost of it. And there was a lot of value for Alex, say, in having the trademark because he was able to protect his brand against uh, someone else using the same name in, in a different way. And obviously there could have been damage to the brand if that person you know, as Alex said, might not have been reputable, maybe shouldn't have been teaching kids, et cetera. Um, where, where do you think someone should trademark a name versus a product versus IP? Because um, trademarking will come in at a lot, lot lower cost than an IP protection, right? Yeah, so I mean, I think all of it, like I said earlier, is subjective. So it depends on how much money you're willing to put into it. I would say trademarks you should do from the beginning if you want to build up a brand if you're not fussed about your brand you're not fussed about the name or any of that you're willing to change it in the future your early stage you're not too precious about that then it's not as much a priority but if you start spending money on marketing you start building up some sort of awareness in the market space you create a logo you pay for that logo you should protect it it's only about a thousand pounds or a couple of thousand pounds maximum for per trademark um you could probably get one for 800 pounds, let's say. If you did it by yourself, it'd be a lot cheaper, but then you have a risk of not protecting yourself properly. Um, so I'd recommend that at the beginning. And then throughout your journey, I mean, like I said, with patents, you need to protect something before you make the methodology public or before somebody else gets there. So that's on a case-by-case -case basis. When do you feel the time is right? Some investors may not invest without a patent. Some investors may think the product itself doesn't need a patent. So it's all subjective. There's no set timeline. But one thing to remember is when you protect your things and you own those IP assets, you can then leverage those. You can then license those. You can then make money off of them, sell them. So whilst it may cost you something now, in a few years, it could make you a lot of money. Perfect. It's an investment. I, I think that covers most of the questions. I mean, the, this other one I think is, may, is targeted towards Alex, but I think the question might be a little bit more like, uh, Alex, if anybody here's been quite impressed, I think myself included, on, on EdShed's growth and scaling, um, where can people reach out to you, I guess? What's the best way to sort of follow up with you or to see what you're um, up to? I guess uh, a public way of connecting with me would be on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at ShedTeach. All one word, ShedTeach, at ShedTeach. Perfect, thanks. I think that might be the, the best way um, to, to jump out. And I guess if, if anything goes beyond that, um, Alex will be able to sort of share his direct contact information. Um, I, I think that sort of wraps up the questions and everything. Um, so Zane and Alex, thank you guys very much for the for the presentation and Alex for, for joining us and, and sharing. Um, if, if anyone in the chat wants to understand a little bit further, we're happy to set up sort of free consultations to uh, speak with Zane and just to sort of advise on your strategy um, and, and take a look. It, it may be a case of, that it's, um, you know, a good idea to wait six months for you to set up your trademark and so forth, or it may be a good idea to do it now. I think there's a lot of good options out there as well in terms of, as Zane said, it can be quite cheap to do it yourself. But we've, as a bit of an exercise, been going through and looking at some of our partners or people that reach out and speak to us because all the trademark information is public. And just looking in, while some companies have a trademark, they quite often sometimes have a very basic one or a trademark that's too broad. We see that sort of come up through with some of the uh, cheaper alternative services because they're very automated processes or people setting them up themselves. So to really understand what 
might be the best way to set your business up. And similar with Alex, where he's sort of planning for the larger scale and the international scale, I think it's definitely worth uh, having a chat and we're, we're happy to sort of do that for free. So um, I, I did chuck a link to, to our calendar into the chat if anyone's interested, but we'll send out an email after this as well. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for, for joining. Um, let us know if, if you need any help and I think uh, have a great day to everyone. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers guys. Bye.